0: Or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you.
1: For those who fought in the Battle of Britain, it was a battle for survival. For the free world, it was a breathless moment in history. For failure would have plunged mankind into a new dark age. Never have so many owed so much to so few. I presume that there is no one who would deny that England should fight on, even though the remainder of the continent of Europe is dominated by the Germans. What's left of your army abandons weapons at Dunkirk. You're defenseless and just playing for time. Europe is ours. We can walk into Britain whenever we like. Don't threaten or dictate to us until you're marching up Whitehall. The war in France was over. The Battle of Britain was about to begin.
2: Protection, scramble! Take off! Don't you...
1: Faced with certain defeat, fighting against insuperable forces, a miracle was achieved by a courageous few. machine, a formidable enemy of thousands of planes, a sure weapon of mass destruction against a small and undermanned force. Yet the story of the RAF in the Battle of Britain is the modern David and Goliath. The motion picture captured the moon, the feelings, the terror. It's all there: The courage, the fears, the frustrations. We've got the rose and curbs.
2: He likes to drink the red line. there, won't he?
1: The people, the men and women who recreated vividly and realistically one of the great periods of our time. We're fighting for survival. Losing. A pilot. And a miracle. Britain's finest hour. And the events and people who made it happen. of Britain. Why they did it is history. How they did it has become the miracle story of our time. Years in preparation and production, filmed where it happened, the skies once again screaming with bombers and fighters. One massive spectacle of a motion picture that attempts the impossible, and that achievement is the Battle of Britain.
3: I got my number two. I'm oh You
1: saw Canfield go down. It blew out. It blew out. This is only the beginning. They won't well. stop now. <laughs> body and chairman here. Set the way back machine. We enter the way back and we're immediately hurtled back through time and space.
4: Hi, my name is Ava. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
0: Hey listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tan Talk 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studio in downtown. No, that's sparkling downtown Clearwater. Yes, and don't forget to check out our website, Golfstream Motorsports.com. And if you've missed any of our past shows, go to our podcast, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and Golfstream Motorsports. Good evening, Chris. How are you doing? What's going on, man? That was a cute little girl that came in there. Tell us a little bit about what was going on, because I was kind of in the back doing production. So what happened right, here? so
3: I have to give a shout out to Cub Scout Troop 313. I hope I got that right. I think I did. I okay. Think, I think I nailed it. Good. I think I nailed it. Yay! <laughs> um, let's see. We Yay! had, who can I remember? Um, Ava. That, so that girl was Ava. Okay. Who, I'm worried that one day she's going to take my job.
0: She sounds like she has a lot she of talent.
3: Sounded amazing
0: and all uh, natural,
3: right? First time out of oh the box. Yeah. I just said, "Okay." I said, "Here's what you're gonna say." She said, "Okay." I hit record, and she was like, "Perfect." First take. Yeah, that's it. That's super. That's better like, than wow. me. So there was Ava, <laughs> um, Ava, Ethan, Marshall, Neo, Nero. Uh, I'm forgetting a whole I know bunch of other some kids that I'm forgetting. There was. So I remember those ones because I was working with them in here. How old was she? Oh, I don't know.
0: Seven or eight? Ava,
3: seven. Ava, if you're out there and you want to give us a call at 727-441-3000 and let us know how old you are so I, I know when to expect my pink slip because you're going to take my job, <laughs> uh, that would be fantastic. Just let me know how many years I have until you uh, you can come in here and take my job.
0: Well, now, speaking of which, now, over the weekend, we had uh, Festivals of Speed, and I was the MC and during the awards presentation, what was really cool this year, I had uh, a very nice young lady with me. Her name was Summer. There was another young lady by the name of Heather, who was supposed to be there, but she got, uh, she got delegated another responsibility, so a big shout-out to Summer, and a big shout-out to uh, Heather, and um, this little girl would have done an amazing job at the awards presentation. You know who else did an amazing job this weekend? Who did an amazing job this weekend? Florida State. FSU, ah! go Knowles! Yeah, yeah. Hey, this goes out to my loving bride of 33 years, Teresa, FSU alumni. So, Chris,
3: you were up there. I did. I was there. I um, I booked a flight Friday afternoon. I got on a plane Saturday morning. I flew up to Charlotte. Uh, I got to my hotel at about 4:30. I left my hotel, got to the stadium um, probably around 7. I uh, was there. Game ended probably around midnight. Uh, 37-35 was Close the game. final. Close game. Close game. Um, Florida State pulled it out, and I was tired and back in my hotel by 1.
0: Wow. <laughs> congratulations. All right. So where does that put FSU in a standing?
3: Uh, so now they play in Pasadena, California. They play in the Rose Bowl. Super. The against, Rose Bowl. Against <laughs> Oregon. Okay. And the winner of that game will play in Dallas. So the Rose Bowl is being played. That game is 5 o'clock on New Year's Day. Okay. FSU in Oregon. Okay. The winner of that game will play on January 12th, I believe it is. Monday, January 12th. They'll play in Dallas. And they will play the winner of uh, the Sugar Bowl, which is Alabama and Ohio State. And that game is played at 8 o'clock on New Year's Day. So FSU plays 5 o'clock New Year's Day, and then they sit, the winner of that game will sit and watch the 8 o'clock game, the Sugar Bowl, because whoever wins the Sugar Bowl will be playing the winner of Florida State and Oregon the following, uh, well, about a week and a half.
0: I think Bama and the Knowles.
3: It's what it's supposed to be. I think so. It really, it's what everybody wants to see. I don't... Have they played before against each other? Uh, it's been a long time. If they really? have, it's a tremendous last year, rivalry. Last year, uh, Florida State was number one, and Bama was number two.
0: Okay. <laughs> and, and
3: Bama had the final. Bama had the final regular season game was against Auburn. Okay. And all they had to do was beat Auburn, which they were. They were the favorite. They. I'm not going to say they were supposed to beat Auburn, but Alabama was number two, and Auburn was like number five or six, and uh-huh. Bama was a better team.
0: They were this year, too, when they played Auburn.
3: Yeah. well, the final was a close game. The final play of the game, Alabama, they were tied. Final play of the game, Alabama lined up to kick like a 55-yard field goal. Uh-huh. Really long field goal for college. Yeah. He kicked the field goal, and it was short. But what Auburn did was they took one of their defenders, and they put him all the way back by the goal post. Now, what happens in, in football is if you kick the field goal, and it's short, your field goal is short. If they've got someone back there, they can catch it. And they can run. So the Auburn guy caught it, ran it all the way back for a touchdown, and Auburn won. With zero with zero seconds on the clock, they won the game.
0: That's, uh, ouch. So, anyway, alright, so uh, I kind of bluffed my way through that. I don't know anything about football. <laughs> so, uh, let me tell you guys what I did this weekend. This weekend we had Festival of Speed, the ninth annual Festival of Speed. So, big shout out to... Joe Sabatini and Mike Flynn. We had a great time. Yours truly was the MC. I had a spectacular time. We had some amazing cars. You know, y- y- we-, we talk about concourse, okay? And we talk about really high-end car shows. So this the Festivals of Speed is typically a lot of late-model high-end cars. You'll have Lamborghini Aventadors. You'll have uh, Maseratis. You'll have Porsches. You'll have Mercedes. You'll have BMWs. You'll have... Uh, uh, Rolls-Royces, obviously, Bentleys, Land Rovers, all that good stuff, right? And that's the late model stuff. And occasionally you'll have some vintage stuff. And, of course, during the FOS deal, you know, a lot of times we have our big car shows. So we have some vintage cars as well. We have some vintage, uh, we had a vintage Cobra replica. that owned by a good friend of mine, Nate. Nate, shout out to you out there. That was a really, really nice car. Another gentleman by the name of Patrick bought a GT40 replica. But there was also a real live 427 Cobra there. There was also a realize, and the chances and the odds of a 427. 427 Cobra and a NART 275 GTB Spider and a California Spider also being at the same event within three car lengths of each other. We're talking a total of probably $45 million in cars. Unbelievable. Not to mention we had a Series 1 flat floor Jaguar E-Type Roadster. We had a set of Pre-A, that's as in pre-1955 Porsche 356s. Not just one, but two matching bookends, identical colors, one coupe, one Cabriolet. We had a 58 Porsche 356 Cabriolet. We had another car, and a big shout-out to Rogero and his lovely wife of many, many years, happily married, and a car enthusiast as well. They brought their very rare, Zagato-bodied, Alfa Romeo TZ3. Now, if you know anything about Alfa Romeos, what people don't realize is everybody knows the name Ferrari, but what people don't realize is Mr. Ferrari uh, actually was chief mechanic and racing director for Alfa Romeo for many, many years. And finally, in the late 40s, after the war, he decided to go out on his own and start his own car company, which, hence he named after himself, Ferrari Ferrari. So, in the, the 30s and 40s, Alfa Romeo was basically the Italian car manufacturer that pretty much set the standard. It was the fast car. Then when Ferrari came on in the mid-50s, you had Maserati as well, okay? and But Maserati, the two Maserati brothers, or five Maserati brothers, when they sold their company, they went out and formed a little company called Oscar. okay? And Oscar was kind of like a little small bore, Barchetta, Barchetta's is the Italian name for little open two-seater sports car or 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 spider which you know either or and but Barchetta means usually an open-seater sports car so they built oscars so they were in different classes but the two supercars that were coming out of italy at at the time were three really was maserati ferrari and alfa romeo and alfa romeo was pretty much a dominant car but then in the 50s ferrari came on really 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 strong you know so it's just a legendary just an amazing car okay the Germans, they had their little small-bore, little flat-four, air-cooled little four-cylinder Porsches, and they were so light, horsepower relative to the weight, they were just agile and nimble. And in their classes, they pretty much dominated everything that was going on. Now, in the 60s, there was a game-changer. Four, uh, Porsche came out, Ford, see, I'm thinking Ford. Uh, Porsche decided to come out with, uh, you know, add a few cylinders to their little 356 motor, the Carreras, and they basically had the, uh, the first one was a 904-6. That's the first car that came out with the flat-six in it. Uh, with the exception of a few prototypes, and you can check, you can fact check my history here a little bit. And uh, so, at any rate, they became uh, one of those dominating forces that decided to put some serious competition on Ferrari. And pretty much in the late 60s, throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even to today, Porsche pretty much is the dominant car in the world. Now, Ferrari recently, in recent years, has come out with the 458, which is a brand new uh, two-door coupe, kind of like uh, you know, everyday driver type kind of car. And that car is so refined and so perfect that uh, and even when you talk to a, a gentleman or a person or a lady or anybody that owns a 458, it is an extremely domesticated quasi-supercar. And I say that, quasi-supercar, because supercars are usually 200-mile-plus cars. These cars push you know, just under that. Another car that was there, which is a car that you will not see very often, is they actually brought over a Pagani. Now, if you want to Google Pagani, it's basically a uh, I'm I'm guessing somewhere, you know, million and a half, two million dollar car, totally hand-built, powered by an AMG-modified Mercedes engine. When AMG is Mercedes' hot rod division, kind of like Schnitzer and uh, Alpina is the kind of like uh, hot rod division of uh, BMW and, you know, Shelby is kind of like the hot rod division to Ford and Chevrolet. Cheats. <laughs> I say that because they've used Lotus. They've used all kinds of people over the years. But anyway, Chevrolet's got their they 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 they've got their fast supercar too. And really, when you stop and think about, it, just to digress again, is a Corvette for the money is almost in supercar category and the new z06 is an unbelievable car so for 80 90 grand you got a car out there that just is is it, it keeps up with the best that the europeans have to offer but there's something you know mystical about you know owning an exotic european car you know and of course lamborghini they had a number of displays up there they had the new huracan Okay, which is the replacement for the Gallardo. And uh, those cars were there. They had a number of McLarens. Not only did they have the 650S, which I had the good fortune of driving while I was out in Monterey um, a couple, three, four, five months ago, but they had two, not one, but two. And I think there was a third one there, P1. So you're talking a million-dollar car, a hybrid, which I wasn't sure they were, but the, one of the salespeople down here at Dimit in St. Petersburg, which is the McLaren dealer, Dimit, Rolls-Royce, McLaren, uh, pretty much... Kind of set the record straight for me so that was pretty cool they had teslas there they had brand new jaguars there Fields bmw was the main sponsor of the uh, festivals of speed event in orlando and i've got to tell you for the 20 dollars that it costs to get into here to see that event and to see you know three four hundred cars uh there may not have been that many but at least 300 it's well worth the money because the cars that you saw there the supercars were incredible We also had motorcycles, and there was a gentleman out of Tampa. Don, if you're listening, a big shout-out to you. This gentleman brought a collection, not one, not two, not three, but four or five vintage 50s, 60s, 70s triumphs there. And uh, the the interesting thing about it, the, the motorcycles were all perfect, and he kept them in his house inside. His wife, bless her little soul, was cool with the fact that he could keep his motorcycles inside. Now, that is a loving, caring wife. Everybody should find one like that. That's like for you sports guys, you know, if you've got a wife that sits down and watches football with you, that's a good thing. And if you're, uh, you're a car guy or a motorcycle guy, and your uh, little sweetie will sit there with you and, and watch racing and mud bogs and all that kind of stuff, that's cool. What do you think, Chris? You know what we call that? What do we call that?
3: Living the dream. Living the dream. Living the dream. Living
0: the dream. When I, can
3: come home from, when I can come home from a long day's work, Yeah. and I can sit Here at down the studio. and watch the game.
0: And your sweetie's next to you. And
3: have her sit there right next to me and watch the game.
0: And share a bowl of popcorn. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) We'll go with popcorn. We'll go with popcorn. Okay. (laughs) Living the dream. (laughs) It's a family show. Anyway, all right. So uh, my festivals of Speed was great. The awards presentation was super. I enjoyed every second of it. I was able to walk around and pretty much just be myself and talk. I was giving people history lessons. Another car that was there that was really interesting was we had a 1904 Thomas Flyer. Now, if you go to the website, Hollywood Wheels, you can see all these cars there. Uh, everything that was on Flynn Hill, a.k.a. Flynn Hill, because of Mike Flynn, our fearless leader. And um, be sure to check out our Facebook page, because I've got Facebook updates on uh, Gulfstream Motorsports and on Nostalgic Radio and Cars. There's a, a cool, pretty cool picture of uh, Mike standing there um, next to an E-Type Jag. Matter of fact, the red one that was there. But there was this 1904 Thomas Flyer. Now, as the story goes, this car's probably, it's hard to put a value on this car. Because this car is probably one of the oldest recreations of early turn-of-the-century race cars known to exist. And having said that, I say that because this car was actually rebuilt out of genuine leftover parts that were manufactured at the time in 1903 and 1904 by Thomas Flyer. So basically, they had original components, all original parts, small parts had to be you know um basically fabricated but for the most part uh 75% of the vehicle is genuine and it was recreated and built and reassembled off the original set of plans now that's very rare that makes the car kind of unique so basically it's a rolling piece of history it's a history lesson in fact that was one of the things that I kind of said when I was there is that you know here we had this 1904 Thomas Flyer, a very, very early American race car, okay, they competed in in numerous events such as the 1905, 1906, or whatever, because the Thomas Flyer didn't compete in 1904, to my knowledge, according to the research I've done, it was like 1905, 1906. Uh, The Vanderbilt Cup, Uh, there was a number of, you know, short races, there was cross-country races, and of course there was the over 5,000 mile around the world competition, starting in New York and winding up in Paris, France, okay, so basically, when I say starting in New York, that means head west, okay, and come around the Paris that way, and um, pretty cool stuff, and um, so anyway, so here we have this 1904 Thomas Flyer, and then we have a 2014 Pagani, state-of-the-art supercar, you know, oh yeah, we also had... Hennessy. Now, my guys will beat on me because the Hennessy is only 0.63 miles an hour. That's less than a mile an hour faster than a production, production Bugatti, okay, which ran just under 270 miles an hour. The Hennessy started life as a Lotus, no different than the very, very original uh, electric Tesla. Then they had a number of those there on display too for people that were potential buyers. But what uh, Hennessy does, Hennessy, I believe, is based out of Texas, and we're going to get him on the radio show. He's a pretty cool guy. He takes the car, picks it out of the air, brings it back to his shop, waves his magic wand, does his magic, and builds a 200 plus mile an hour supercar. So here was this Hennessy that resembled a Lotus Elise, okay, somewhat, but then looked more like a GT1 car that you would see racing at, uh, you know, Le Mans or something like that, or Daytona, you know, a serious prototype. But this car you could buy, put your key in it turn the key on hit the light switch and drive this thing cross country and if you have the the wherewithal to drive that thing at full bore uh, it will set you back in the seat an amazing car in fact I think they did an episode of Top Gear with one of the Hennesseys and stuff so that car was it so just think about it Thomas Flyer Jaguar Ferrari Lamborghini Real Live Cobra Porsche 356s, Porsche 911s, Camaros, Mustangs. One of the awards went to a gentleman that had a 1970 Mach 1 428 four-speed car, nice car. 69 Camaros. There was a Yanko there. There was a 67 Shelby there. There was a I believe there was a Chevelle there. We had a replica of one of my favorites. Remember the movie Um Back to the Future? The, the, my
3: favorite movie of all time.
0: What was that called? What was it called? Oh, the, the DeLorean. DeLorean. Yeah, they had and I was sitting there and I said, I told my buddy Jeff. Well, hey, 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 a big shout-out to Jeff Davis, you know, a newest member to our team. Anyway, um, and, uh, you know, take a picture. I mean, it had a functioning flux capacitor on it, you know. I mean, <laughs> seriously. And then there was this other gentleman I met there, and he owns a company called Gingerbread uh, Insurance. He brought a number of really cool classic cars out there. So it was really, really just a real eclectic kind of show. And the neat thing about it is this time we really had Concourse-quality cars, But these are cars that everybody could kind of get up close and personal with. I mean, you're not allowed to sit in these cars outside of the dealer cars, but you can really have a lot of fun. I mean, these things were pretty neat pieces.
3: Do you think he ever got it over 88 miles an hour?
0: Uh, Not where this one was parked. This was kind of like landlocked parked, you know?
3: Because you know what happens when you hit 88 miles an hour. You go back to the future. You're going to see some serious stuff.
0: (laughs) And on that note, what do you got on the turntable for us? Um, We got something nostalgic and vintage?
3: I, I. I wish I had known we were going to go back to the future. I could have thrown on in like the power of all something. Oh, Yeah, or
0: something. some, uh, like some Huey uh, Lewis? Hugh Lewis stuff. Yeah, <laughs> why didn't I? Th- I didn't even think about that. You know, normally we try to tie the show in a little bit. And the reason we played the beginning of the, mo- or the movie trailer to um, Battle of Britain because historically we always do cars, boats, motorcycles. But guess what? I finally have got a gentleman coming on the air tonight and we're going to talk about airplanes. And not just any airplane, we're going to talk about the World War II warbird of warbirds the mighty the magnificent the most powerful the p51 mustang hey we're listening to rare earth this is some really cool stuff this song's got a simple title it's called ma as in your mom Ma. hey you're tuning into nostalgic radio and cars i'm your show host robert don't touch that doll we'll be right back with our special guest for the evening
4: pause guitar sit herself down
0: takeout order at 727-501-9090 that's 727-501-9090 they truly have the best smoking barbecue in town oh and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce that's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo 727-501-9090 I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you
5: hi this is Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars
4: has
1: conquered the heavens, broken the sound barrier, reached out for the moon. Now, after two years of production, the expenditure of millions, the assembling of an internationally renowned cast of stars, 20th Century Fox proudly brings you the fabulous, fantastic story of the men whose skill and courage started it all.
3: Aviation today is that too many good ideas are being
1: dissipated in too many aeroplanes. If we could bring together all these different types from all over the world,
4: then everyone could learn from each other from all over the world.
1: From all over the world they came America, Italy, Germany, France, Japan, England. To compete in the first, the most fabulous, the most foolhardy air race of all time. And here was the English beauty who had them all up in the air.
4: Are you two fighting over me?
1: The trouble with these international affairs is that they attract foreigners.
4: Those like you men in their flying machines, they go up to your pup. they go down to your ground.
1: He's not supposed to carry passengers.
4: Don't push me! Don't touch me. No! No! <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Jack Roush, and you're listening
0: to Nostalgic Radio on Cars. Hey, we're back. Thank you, Jack Roush, who also proudly owns a P-51 Mustang. Now, over the weekend, we had the... uh Festival a Speed event, which I mentioned, and what they typically do on a Friday night is they also have what they call this jetboard party. And a lot of times you'll find some nice helicopters there, a lot of cool cars, food, music, vintage wines, c- contemporary wines, small little aircraft. But this year they had a few World War II airplanes. One in particular caught my attention, and it was a P-51 Mustang, which is probably my all-time favorite, okay? Well, this particular airplane falls in the category of an, what they call an unlimited air race, Okay, and I was very fortunate to meet the gentleman there who graciously allowed me to sit in this mighty World War II warbird. And I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Tom Richard. Tom, are you there?
5: Yes, sir. How are you doing this evening,
0: Robert? Pretty good. Again, thank you very much for allowing me to sit in your amazing airplane.
5: Well, of course. My pleasure all the way. So you enjoyed it, huh?
0: I did, I did. I I, I I was begging you to let me ride in it, but you said it's only a single seater, so we'll have to settle for something else. But boy, I'll tell you what, what an opportunity that would be.
5: Well you could always, you know, write me a really really large check, take it around the patch, and then I'll take the check back.
0: <laughs> a security deposit, right? Yeah, right. That's it. Okay, tell us a little bit about precious metals and then also you have a like a flying school called what? Warbird Adventures? Is that how that works?
5: Yeah, that's correct. Um, Precious Metal is uh, the world's only Griffin-powered P51 Mustang. What that means is we have a much uh, larger upgraded motor and contra-rotating propellers, which makes it pretty exciting. And um, it it competes in the world's fastest motorsport, which is unlimited air racing. So what that means is uh, we have two rules in the class. That means it's got to be piston-powered and propeller-driven. Anything else goes. And... um, The uh, aircraft that are the fastest uh, are obviously World War II fighters. Uh, We modify or upgrade, uh, we like to say, to uh, um, compete in this uh, pylon racing class. Warbird Adventures is uh, our base. That's uh, where we operate in Kissimmee. Um, We operate uh, World War II fighter trainers, where anybody off the street can come and hop in the front seat of a fighter trainer and go at it. In other words, if you want to go do aerobatics or formation flying and chase each other around the sky... Provide that service to.
0: Interesting. Now let's talk about the bird a little bit. The P fifty one. Give us a little background history. They built those planes. Let's say like forty one to 43, 44, somewhere around in that era. Is that when they were kind of like, yeah, like dominating yeah, the correct. airspace? Okay. So take us through the process a little bit of the of the airplane, and then a stock version compared to what you've done to yours.
5: Sure. The uh, what made the P fifty one famous was the fact that it was able to go to Berlin and back. It was able to escort our bombers all the way to the target without being harassed by enemy fighters. That's what the P-51 was, uh, <clears throat> how it made its mark in history. It's a fantastic aircraft for that purpose. It also turns out that the uh, the laminar flow wing that they put on this thing is incredibly fast, and um, the, it's been the prominent um, player in the unlimited air racing since that started just after World War II. The um, Mustangs have been modified over the years uh, many different ways in order to make them faster, you know, upgraded engines and fairings and clipped wings and things of that sort to make, make them slick and go faster. The stock Mustang will go around the course at about 350 miles an hour. That's impressive in and of itself <laughs> And with an aircraft that was able to fly, you know, um, halfway across Europe and back. Now, we don't need to do that. We only do eight laps. So. We have an advantage in that we don't need to carry guns and uh, armor, all that other stuff that's necessary to accomplish the mission. So all we care about is speed. So we have, a, uh, with these aircraft, we have accomplished uh, what the manufacturers thought was absolutely impossible at the time, and that's to exceed 500 miles an hour on the course.
0: Is that a real feat for a single prop engine?
5: Um, I'm sorry, say
2: again?
0: Is that a real feat? Is that a real challenge for a single prop engine, basically? I mean, you know.
5: Absolutely. The flat-out world speed record today for any piston-powered propeller-driven aircraft is 528 miles an hour, and that's in a straight line. Realize that we run in a circle, pull in four to five Gs around the corners, three corners, um, and we lap every minute on an eight-mile course, which creates a lot more drag than just going in a straight line. So, yeah, it's an incredible feat. It's a very, very difficult thing to accomplish.
0: You mentioned that your plane has two propellers. Give us the difference between the Griffin, the Rolls-Royce Griffin motor that you have and, let's say, the regular, conventional Rolls-Royce Merlin engine that would have been in a production plane.
5: Mm-hmm. The, uh, the um, stock... The Rolls-Royce Merlin, fantastic engine, is a 60-degree V12, just like the Griffin. It's a different family of engine, however, and the, the difference in displacement is a whopping 10 liters, or 600 cubic inches. The Merlin's a 27-liter engine, and the the uh, Griffin is a 37 liter engine, <laughs> and huh. stock that gives it yeah,
0: <laughs> mind boggling 37 liters. Jeez, yeah,
5: 30, yeah, 37 liters. So each each uh, cylinder is uh, is over three liters. It's a very very impressive. At the um, one of powerplant.
0: How big in diameter are the pistons? Six inches. Okay, just to put this in perspective to you guys, a big block Chevrolet is four inches in diameter with a four and a quarter inch stroke, okay? So you're talking a six inch, that's almost 30% larger.
5: Mm-hmm. And what's yeah, a stroke? Yeah, uh, six and a half inches. Wow. So it's almost square.
0: It's almost square. Okay.
5: Yeah, And in addition to that, we run uh, four valves, you know, two intake, two uh, exhaust valves. Um, stuff that they didn't come up with in cars, till so much, much later and we have two spark plugs per cylinder, so dual ignition systems, uh, so the burn is much more complete.
0: Okay. Now how does that work (laughs) with the twin props that you have?
5: That's a completely different uh, setup. Um, The Griffin came out with single screw as well as contra-rotating propellers, and that's what it's called. Okay. It's not a a counter-rotating, like when you have two engines on a twin engine aircraft. It's called a contra-rotating prop when it's on a single shaft. And the way that works is you have a slave gear that reverses direction for one of the two props uh, coming out of the crank. It's actually very, very simple. You have uh, the two drive gears on the crank, a slave gear for one of them, and then you have the two large driving gears, one shaft inside the other. So the rear drive is a smaller shaft that drives the front propeller and so on. So it's, it's actually much simpler than it looks. It's a virtually bulletproof, very, very reliable piece of equipment. That's the direction that pretty much all the fighters were going towards the end of the war. They had uh, prototype Corsairs, P-47s, they had um, uh, Martin Baker V, late model C-fires and Spitfires that were all going to contra rotating installations. What happened was the jet came on the scene and ruined it for us, so there were very few of these in existence.
0: <laughs> what was the total production for uh, P-51s?
5: Uh, I, oh, now you're catching me off guard. I think about 15,000.
0: 50, really? That's a limited run when you think about it in the big scheme of things, because did that that played mostly the B fifty ones were in the European theater, but did they fly over in the Pacific as well?
2: They did.
5: They did. They, okay. uh, what they did really well there was escort the B twenty nine. Okay. When they started getting long legs as well.
0: Okay. So so back to the the, the propellers. So. Mm-hmm. Do they both rotate in the same direction? Is that, or they... No, no,
5: no. And that's the purpose of the slave gear, to reverse the direction of of one of the two props. So the propellers are what we call constant speed, or or, uh, to the layman, um, controllable pitch propeller. So the blades feather. In other words, they rotate about their own axis. So you can change the blade angle, depending on the amount of power you give it to it, so it can maintain a given RPM. So the front propeller... Is controlled by a big hydraulic cylinder that sits in the front, which is uh, powered by engine oil pressure. And um, there is a translation unit in between the two propellers, very similar to a swashplate on a helicopter, that controls the rear prop. So it's really just one propeller. It's one propeller lever, one controller, one governor that controls the whole thing. It's not like flying a multi-engine airplane at all. It's just one engine, one prop. It just happens to have three blades going in one direction and three in the other.
0: Now, as you're flying... Do you change the pitch of these props at all to, you know, for speed and, and to Absolutely, yeah. Okay. The,
5: the, yeah. The way that works is, if, if you remember playing with steam engines as a kid, there was something called a governor. Okay. It consisted of two little flyweights controlling a valve, a steam valve, with two flyweights on the spring. And that's exactly how a governor controls the RPM of the prop, by changing the amount of oil pressure that goes into this hydraulic cylinder in the front, and that in turn changes the pitch of the blades. So as the pilot, all I do is I tell the engine I want X RPM, and I have a lever and a tachometer, of course, and I just move it to the position where it will maintain that RPM, and the governor will do the work for me. So once I have the RPM set, then I decide how much power I want to put into the engine, which is controlled by the manifold pressure, in other words, the throttle, and uh, we'll see... uh, you see how much power comes out at the end.
0: Okay. Now, you would also mentioned, too, that you, there's some physical changes to the airplane. So, in other words, you kind of shorten the wings a little bit, and you raise the tail, yeah. and tell us a little bit about how that works.
5: Absolutely. The, uh, the aircraft is clipped two feet on each side, so the wingspan is four feet shorter than the stock Mustang. Uh, we don't need those extra two feet, because we don't go to high altitude, and, uh, and uh, we're more interested in flat-out speed. We also don't really care about handling characteristics, we don't mind if the aircraft becomes a little bit tricky to handle because we can deal with it in combat. It's a different story we you want a friendly airplane something we can you know put bullets or bombs on the target. We only care about going fast within safety parameters of course so <clears throat> clipping the wings is not a big deal for us. we don't care about higher approach speeds. we don't want to, we don't care about landing in short strips et cetera. Um so that's one of the mods that you can do. Most people tend to cut down the canopies because they stick out a long ways. We um in racing, we we only fly in a circle, so small canopies is not a problem. We're not worried about a fighter coming up on our tail, for example. Um in the case of precious metal, we needed a larger tail because the two oh. propellers <laughs> in in effect destabilize the aircraft, so we needed a larger one. So we put a later model H P-51H model tail on our airplane, for example, and things of that sort. You tend to bond all the wings up so they're really slick and seal everything and try to make things lighter. That's a little tricky because we need the structure, of course, so we can't only make things so light. So yeah, uh, there's a hundred different things you can do to make an
2: aircraft faster.
0: Okay, now when you fly at these uh, uh, these air shows, okay, now I think I've seen something a couple times on TV, uh, something Red Bull sponsored, where you have to, like you said, you fly through these pylons and you go here and you go there, it's almost like an obstacle course in the air. At what altitudes are you guys flying?
5: Yeah, the Red Bull Air Races is a different story. That's, in essence, time trials, because they fly against the clock. There's only one guy on the course at a given time, and what they do is incredible. They're absolutely fantastic athletes and pilots. It's it's very, very impressive. What we do is different, however. We race against each other. We have eight to ten airplanes on the course at the same time. We actually pass each other. So it's more like NASCAR. In the air? Yeah.
0: NASCAR in the air.
5: Hey, you got it, except it's twice as fast. And, um, and, uh, yeah, we fly between 50 and 250 feet.
0: Jeez. Okay, now, I mean, how close do you guys get to each other?
5: Uh, Well, as long as you don't touch, you're good to go.
0: What other airplanes compete in your class?
5: Well, we have a slew of Mustangs, of course. Hawker Sea Furies are very popular and and, uh, very successful. We also have a -a one-of-a-kind Bearcat that uh, has done very well over the years. Then there are some other things. Uh, there are some yaks and uh, also slower aircraft that just partake in the class but don't have any intention of winging, winning, such as P-40s and Corsairs. And things like that sort.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background. What makes what would your background and then what, would some, what type of a background would someone have to be able to be competitive in this particular sport?
5: Well, it uh, it uh, you need to have a lot of piss and vinegar, if you will. The, uh, <laughs> the drive—it's <laughs> just like any other racing. You're really going to want to do it because it takes an awful lot of resources to make it happen. It's obviously a very expensive sport, and it takes an incredible amount of time, not only on my part, but on my volunteer teams' part as well. Um, Year before last, we actually logged what we put into the airplane. We end up with over six thousand hours of labor before the races. Just just to give you some idea,
0: six thousand hours labor before. Yeah.
5: So uh, yeah, it's a very very labor intensive quest um, to be the fastest piston powered anything in the world. That, that's what we're going for, obviously. Um, as far as the background is concerned, you know, obviously you have to be a a tailwheel pilot, and you have to be decent at aerobatics, and you have to be very good at formation flying, because that's the type of flying that we do. So you need to work in that sort of a field. You need to be, you know, aerobatic instructor, or crop duster, or air show pilot, that kind of thing, to get into air racing and do what we do successfully. So you need to be a professional in in, in the aviation.
0: Okay, and what's your background?
5: Well, um,
0: do you have military background?
5: No, I was all civilian. I you know, I wanted to go uh military just like all other kids want to become a fighter pilot, but I didn't have the eyesight at the time. I do now, but I'm too old to go in the military, so the um I ended up going the civilian route. Um small mom and pop uh flight schools, you know, washed airplanes for flying time and became an aircraft mechanic, wrenched on aircraft and uh, and the started flying as much as possible. Eventually I became a flight instructor. And that's what uh, that's been my um game now for nearly 25 years, and I specialized in vintage and aerobatic aircraft, tailwheels, that sort of thing. And it was a natural transition to end up in the T-6, which is the fighter trainer that we operate here at Warbird Adventures. Um, we now have three of these, so that's my full-time gig, is to turn people upside down and, and uh, have them enjoy themselves. So, <laughs> but,
2: uh, I, you know, Okay
5: people uh, ask me all the time they you know they can't believe i get paid to do this well i tell them <laughs> it's uh, it's much much better than working that's for sure
0: <laughs> take us so, through go ahead i'm sorry
5: no that's all right i uh it's a very enjoyable uh career and uh and uh, definitely uh um, a very good basis for uh for air racing if that's what you're interested in pursuing
0: okay where did the name precious metal come from
5: um Precious Metal was actually a different airplane that was flown back in the 70s by um, Gary Levitt. Uh, if you remember him from Levitt's Furniture
0: Stores. Oh, really? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah,
5: yeah. Um, and the name was passed down uh, through a couple of owners, and, and uh, the gentleman that put this airplane together the first time, back in 1989, Don Whittington, he uh, continued that name, and they even used the number for a while, the race number, <laughs> and uh, it's just been passed down. When we got it, it uh, we felt it was uh, appropriate for what it is because uh, there's uh, probably very few pieces of aluminum in, the wor- aluminum in the world that's worth as much money as this is, and uh, precious metal is very appropriate. It's also you know a, bit, a lot of tradition. Everybody knows the aircraft, very special one of a kind machine, been featured all over the place, obviously, and uh, we felt it would be bad luck to change the name, so we just kept
0: it. Oh, I think it's very appropriate. Let me ask you this: um, What year was that plane? I mean, originally.
5: Um, it's a little hard to say. It's built from various parts, uh-huh. but we believe a lot of it's uh, 1944.
0: Okay, so was it an, a flight, a, a plane that actually flew back in the day, or is it something that was put together out of leftover parts or a fuselage? Was, it was, or
5: it's mostly put together from leftover parts. The The fuselage was used in some production studios for uh, uh, cockpit shots and movies Uh uh, for quite a few years, and it was taken off the set. Um, How the wing came about the first time, I don't know, but it's been rebuilt several times. It's it's essentially a relatively new airplane. Mm There's very few things that would have been... um, active and flying during the war although there probably are some parts that uh, have history like that we just have no way of chasing it Uh uh-huh
0: well i'll tell you what's an amazing plane. we've got a few minutes left tom tell us a little bit more about warbird adventures and let's just say i I was standing at your doorstep take us through the procedure uh -hmm. kind of give us like a visual idea of what it would look like if i walked up to you to you right now and said i'm here to to uh fly in one of the airplanes with you what would what would what would i have to go through
5: very good. Well, the first you show up on our location, which is which is at the Kissimmee Air Museum at the Kissimmee Airport. We're uh, only a few miles away from the, the uh, attractions here just south of Orlando. Um, and when you walk in the door, obviously you get to decide what kind of flights flight you're interested in. That's basically how long it needs to be, anywhere from 15 minutes on up. Um, we offer various packages if you want to do aerobatics That's an option. And we're going to teach you how to do all these things. This is not a ride. So it's not what we do. What we do is we put you behind the controls. You do all the flying, including the aerobatics and perhaps even formation flying. And we'll teach you how it's done. And when you're done, we'll sign this off as your first flight lesson towards your license. So we'll stick you in the seat, and we'll go through a briefing, the safety stuff, obviously, parachutes and things of that sort, how that works. So a little bit like the uh, airline briefings you get from the flight attendants before you take off on an airliner. We uh, teach you all about the safety equipment that we have on board. A little bit different, and um, then we blast off. Um, if you've never flown before, we tend to demonstrate the first takeoff and landing. Beyond that, you're welcome to try it yourself. Uh, you got to learn in something, so you might as well, you know, learn it in the muscle car, if you will.
0: Th- um, this sounds absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm yeah, trying to put a visual on this. So you're turning me, you're taking me up 10,000 feet and turning me loose in the sky.
5: Absolutely, yeah. I'll talk you through the air about you know, the loops and rolls and all the good stuff you see to do at the air shows. You're going to do that yourself. And uh, I'll, and if for some reason you screw something up, chances are I'm just going to talk you out of it. Um, rarely do I have to touch the controls to help you. That's really? Not necessary. Yeah.
0: Sign me up for that, except I won't eat a pizza <laughs> before I come, I can assure you.
5: <laughs> absolutely. And then we record the whole thing. You know, we got three cameras on each airplane. So you get all the hooting and hollering. And it's absolutely hilarious to watch. Really? After. Yeah. yeah. And all the families get to watch after the flight. You know, we have a debriefing room. People are watching the TVs. So it's uh, it's great to see. Like, they're just lit up. Most people swear up and down. It's the greatest thing they've ever done in a flight.
0: Wow. That's incredible. OK, so what is this all going to cost me?
5: Well uh the shortest flight starts at two hundred fifty bucks um a uh, half hour with all the aerobatics and <clears throat> excuse me options, which is the most popular, runs about five hundred
0: That's really a bargain oh, when you think about it
5: oh yeah it's a step back in history and and if you enjoy roller coasters, this is so much better because first off, it's not you know jerky and jarry like a roller coaster is it's really smooth, and you're not along for the ride. You decide what happens, so it's a big difference in performance and and g-forces and just pure fun
0: so how much time do you spend on the ground before you actually strap yourself into the uh, cockpit
5: oh, it only takes about five minutes it's not a very- five
0: minutes oh that's even more fun yeah this is better than an e-ticket at disney world
5: oh it, it doesn't even compare it's uh you know it, we the, the sky is our playground
0: wow that is absolutely incredible i mean really i mean uh I'm ready to go now. That sounds incredible. So, <laughs> what kind of, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, what kind of speeds are we doing?
5: Uh, we'll we'll bring it up over 200 at
2: times.
0: Wow. Now, the the sensation of speed in air in a small aircraft versus, let's say, like a car on the ground, relatively speaking, or in a boat. What's it like?
5: Uh, you don't feel it because you're far away. It's a bit like you know when you drive down the road and you see a tree line a mile away. Even if you're going 100 miles an hour, it's moving slow, right? So it's the same kind of feel. Unless you're close to something, you can't tell how fast you're going. It's really just a number on a dial. But if you fly by another airplane, go in the other direction, it, it'll absolutely blow your mind how fast we're going.
2: Wow. Or
5: if you fly close to the ground like we do at the races in Reno, for example. Now, that's not something we can offer down here, of course. That's not... Uh, the F.A. would frown on that, so we are not going to partake in that. But we will fly close to other airplanes, and that's where you really see it. Now, the G-forces that you feel are just like the G-forces you feel in roller coasters except we maintain them for much longer periods. And uh, it's it's pretty impressive to, to uh, do a loop that's over a thousand foot in diameter and, and uh, watch your your, watch your buddy do the same thing next to you. It's, it's wild.
0: Wow. Alright, Tom, we're just about out of time. Go ahead and plug okay. your Warbird Adventures. Tell everybody how they get a hold of you.
5: Yeah, it's easy. WarbirdAdventures.com and um, uh, phone number in the office here is 407 Eight seven zero seven three six six, And if you're interested in air racing, it's uh, Precious Metal Air Racing fan page on Facebook.
0: Well, Tom, I want to thank you very much. I want to thank my special guest, Tom Richard, with the most amazing World War II P-51 Mustang, Precious Metal, and World War Adventures. Tom, I'm gonna to have to come see you one of these weeks, so uh, I look forward to it. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Be sure and check out our Facebook page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Gulfstream Motorsports. If you have missed any of our past shows, go to our website, Gulfstream Motorsports. So you can see our podcast. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. And we're getting close to Christmas, everybody. Oh, yeah! I don't mean to be telling tales out of school, but there's a
4: feller in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can.
1: Downtown Dade.
4: I'm not here to make
1: a record, you jump cracker. It broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN,
0: Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR,
3: Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen.
0: You jump cracker.